This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. The education of a lifetime in terms of labor activism, black lung, medical politics, um, and so on. And that, that context really has shaped my own approach to black lung, which really focuses on the workplace, the struggles between miners and operators over the conditions of work, the role of the union in that, the United Mine Workers of America, uh, and of course, the policies and actions of coal company owners and supervisors in the mines. So um, let me invite Chris to say a few words by way of his own introduction. Yeah, well, thank you, Barbara Allen. And, and also just want to reiterate, thank you to Haymarket and to Little Brown for hosting this. Um, and thank you to all of you who are tuning in. Um, my history with Black Lung uh, does not go back. Uh, I, I don't have the deep uh, history that Barbara Allen does. Um, but it was a real pleasure when I was working on this book to get to learn about um, uh, some of the, the work of the, the original Black Lung movement. But my uh, time with Black Lung really goes back to 2011, uh, which was when I was a reporter uh, at the nonprofit investigative news outlet, the Center for Public Integrity. And we had uh, gotten uh, so I was I was covering uh, labor and environmental issues primarily. And uh, we had gotten a report on the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster, which a lot of you um, probably will remember. And they uh, had done autopsies. There was a, uh, a page in the report describing the autopsies that they'd done on, on the miners. And a, an astronomical percentage of them had black lung. And that was a shock to me. It was even more shocking to learn that... Um, government researchers had been documenting a resurgence of the disease. So that kind of set me on the path to looking into why um, this disease that I assumed, probably like most people, had been eradicated long ago was now surging back. And then that ultimately led me to also look at the benefits system and how miners are systematically deprived of um, benefits. Right. Well, um, we thought that we might start out by giving, um, in addition to these introductions to our, ourselves, just a brief um, overview of the history of the Black Lung Movement, just very briefly because we wanted to get into um, additional conversation. But um, let me, just for those who may not be familiar with Black Lung uh, and the history of the Black Lung Movement, just note that um, you know, despite what seems to be pretty obvious relationship between working underground in a coal mine, breathing dust every day, uh, and the possibility of developing a, a severe and disabling lung disease, that connection was actually denied by the medical establishment in the United States um, and Britain and many other places in the world. 
uh, until the 20th century, the late 20th century. And in fact, um, it was really only after World War II when a generation of miners who had kept their job during a period of intensive mechanization, many miners lost their jobs. There was massive outmigrations in the coal fields. But those who managed to keep their jobs were working in extremely dusty conditions with this new machinery. And by the mid to late 60s, these miners began retiring en masse from the mine. Many were quite significantly disabled with lung disease that they could get no compensation for whatsoever. It was not recognized in most states, in any states actually, until the mid-60s. And in West Virginia, which was the largest coal-producing state at the time, it was not recognized at all. And indeed, physicians in various medical societies lined up um, to deny the possibility that this was a legitimate condition. Um, so miners organized. Uh, through their local unions with support uh, from a few sympathetic physicians, with some war on poverty, uh, community organizers, uh, and they marched, they held meetings, they raised money, and they went on strike uh, in order to force the West Virginia legislature to recognize black lung as a compensable disease. Soon thereafter, uh, the U.S. Coal Mine Health and Safety Act was passed in the wake of the Farmington Mine Explosion in November of 1968. And it was that legislation that inaugurated a federal black lung compensation program. Um, and that program became the focus of a continuing controversy over black lung disease because miners uh, who applied for federal compensation and widows who applied for compensation based on their um, deceased husband's uh, record of um, lung disease or their their experience of his lung disease uh, were denied compensation. So there ensued a whole continuing controversy over who really controls the definition of this disease and who controls the levels at which disability uh, is set. And so miners continue to organize and won reforms in the eligibility requirements during 1970s. Um, and one other thing to note about this period is that the initial federal compensation program was financed entirely by the U.S. Treasury and administered by the Social Security Administration. But the logic was that, okay, once we start controlling dust in mines, then this Incident of, incidents of disease should drop drastically, and only coal operators who really aren't um, observing these dust limits should be liable, but they should be liable for future claims. So in the 70s, there was a shift from tax revenue financed black fund benefits to benefits financed by so-called responsible coal operators, and the process became adversarial, so coal companies could contest individual miners and their survivors' black lung claims. And that is the situation that we still face today. So, Chris, you want to pick it up from there? And yeah, and then the, the system that I came to see um, when I started looking into this was really a product of uh, the 1980s, the early 1980s in, in large respect. And that was, um, you know, there was a, a liberalization in some ways in 1978, um, 77 and 78 of the law and the claims award rate rate went up um, quite a bit, and it reached about 50%, which was 
perhaps anomalously high. The Labor Department had implemented new rules uh, that were starting to bring that back down. But what you have when the Reagan administration comes in is this looks like sort of a runaway entitlement program. And they see massive spending. And what ends up happening is um, there is legislation that's passed in the end of 1981, taking effect in 1982, that really changed the system, the compensation system going forward in a pretty dramatic way. Um, what it, it not only rolled back the liberalized standards, but it actually um, undid some of the original protections in the law. And one of the key ones was this 15 year presumption. And this is always this is something that exists in, in a number of workers' compensation settings. And it's, it's a really difficult thing to deal with occupational disease. And so there was this presumption in the 1972 amendments that basically if a miner had worked 15 years or more in the mines and had a totally disabling respiratory impairment, that for purposes of the system, it would be presumed that the cause was coal dust. Um, the amendments in 1981, 1982, away with that. And then it also uh, required widows not only to show that their husbands uh, had black lung when they died, but that they died because of black lung. So you have these ridiculous scenarios where someone is totally disabled of, of black lung at the time of their death, but if they get injured in a car crash, they're just the widow is out of luck. The after this, the claims rate really dropped precipitously to about 4% by 1988. And it kind of has hovered there. It hovered there for quite a period of time. The other reason for that was, as as Barbara Ellen said, became adversarial. And so you were no longer, miners were no longer taking on the government lawyers. They were taking on private lawyers paid by the coal companies. And this became extremely uh, adversarial. And that really became the system that I looked at um, years later. And um, so, I mean, that, that really persisted until very recently. But, um, but uh, you know, Barbara Ellen, I wanted to, to ask you, um, there, there's been so many things that I've, I've been <laughs> wanting to ask you actually after reading your book, um, a while back and then the new edition that just came out recently. But um, one of the things that, that really struck me about the, the recent resurgence was that we can sort of peg all these technical causes of it. But, um, you know, as journalists and researchers and scientists do, um, but I'm wondering, you know, stepping back, one of the things that you've looked at is, I mean, what do you, what is really driving um, this resurgence of disease from a broader perspective? Um, well, thanks. That was a big, actually, um, a frustration with solely technical explanations was part of my motivation for updating this book. Um, because I think the economics through the political economy, the coal industry has a whole lot to do um, with why we are seeing this resurgence of really severe uh, severely disabling disease. And let me mention in that regard that the epicenter of that resurgence is really central Appalachia, um, and which is to say southern West Virginia, East Kentucky, and southwest Virginia. Um, and if you look at the 
you know, the really big picture of the political economy of the industry, what you see is that beginning in the 1970s, coal mining begins to shift west in the United States, and you get the development of these enormous strip mines in places like Wyoming um, and other states out west where labor productivity is incredibly high. Um, these are just massive surface mining operations um, with store, you know, drag lines that are many stories high. Um, so labor productivity is very high. Um, it's relatively cheap in terms of labor costs per ton um, to get this coal out of the ground. Uh, the price of coal begins to fall eventually. And so uh, coal operators who are mining the East are really under significant competitive pressure to figure out how to cut their own costs um, in this context. So you begin to see companies um, selling out, just leaving the Eastern coal fields altogether. Some of them begin mining coal with uh, subcontractors, with smaller operators who um, who then sell their coal to bigger ones. You begin to see bankruptcies that have really accelerated in more recent years. Um, but there's kind of a shakeout going on uh, in the, particularly the Appalachian coal industry. And that's especially true in central Appalachia, where the coal seams tend to be thinner. Um, the great majority of really thin seam mines are in central Appalachia. Um, and so the cost of getting that coal out of the ground tends to be much higher. Um, so companies start cutting uh, corners with uh, their labor practices. You see efforts to, you know, cut costs in terms of um, uh, occupational safety and health. Um, and you see ultimately the effort to undermine and then get rid of the United Mine Workers of America so that they won't have to pay into union pension plans, union health care coverage, and so on. H.E. Massey really spearheads this drive um, in the 1980s, but it's also evident in the piston strike, uh, which the United Mine Workers rate wages pretty heroically and very strategically um, and, and win uh, in some respects. But ultimately, the union cannot hold back this anti-union offensive, um, which, of course, is aided on the political side by um, what Chris was mentioning, the Reagan administration, a very anti-labor atmosphere so that you get um, the union being sued and fined and rulings about the size of its picket lines. You get state police protecting non-union coal trucks. You get state police protecting non-union workers crossing picket lines and so on. And so there's really this massive um, assault on the union, and it's particularly severe in central Appalachia and southern West Virginia. So that today, fewer than 10% of the workforce, it's about 7% as of 2018, um, in, in central Appalachia is a member of the United Mine Workers. Uh, and that's much lower. It's much more significant than in other uh, subregions of Appalachia. So you get rid of the union, um, you cut in costs, you talk to miners about this situation, and they just, over and over again, I hear miners talk about um, what happened 
during this period and what indeed continues to happen today, and that is that um, there is this emphasis on running coal, productivity at all costs, you know, don't worry about your water sprays on the equipment, don't worry about, uh, you know, dust sampling, just put it in your dinner bucket or hang it in the air intake where the fresh air comes into the mine, uh, don't worry about the increasing dust levels, just get that coal. Um, and miners talk about how they don't even know when their shift is going to end because if somebody calls in sick or fails to show up for work, then you work a double shift. And indeed, um, the data from the Mine Safety and Health Administration indicates that the number of hours that miners work has increased by about a third um, over the last several decades. So um, there's just this intense productivity pressure going on. and a, in many cases, a willful disregard of health and safety practices. So that's a, you know, it's a setup for um, all kinds of health and safety problems and certainly an increase in occupational lung disease. But then in addition to that, and particularly in central Appalachia, in these thin seam mines, you have miners who are increasingly having to drill through rocks to even get at the seam. And this is where the technical explanations come into play, because that rock, uh, it turns out, is high in silica content, which researchers will tell you um, works like, as one mentioned or described it, uh, works like ground glass, extremely harmful to the lungs. Um, and so it's also a carcinogen, actually. So um, in my view, it's extremely important, of course, to emphasize the role of silica, and we need a specific standard for silica um, in underground coal mines, uh, a more strict one than we have, and a more specific one. But um, I would argue that the, the cause of this whole situation is more the changing political economy of the industry than this inert material human beings who put the situation in motion. So... Um, so let me turn to you, Chris, and ask you, um, your book recounts many, many moving stories um, about miners and their families to get federal black lung compensation. Um, so I'm just wondering, again, um, people may not be familiar with what it really means to try to gain benefits when you are already I mean, severely disabled by lung disease. So I'm wondering if you could just it perhaps recount um, one of those stories that um, were related related to you, and perhaps talk a little bit about how this situation might be improved when we take to do that. Yeah, I mean, what you know, over the course of um, reporting that I have been doing over the years, um, you know, I've, I've really seen the human toll of what you described about the, you know, basically all of the technical causes with, as you, as you describe it, the sort of larger social, political and economic um, drivers there, but it really has a, a, a gut wrenching toll on, um, on these miners. And it is incredibly, it is shocking to sit in the living room with someone who otherwise looks like a, relatively young, healthy man. And just from having a conversation with you, he is eventually struggling for breath. Um, 
and that and there's a there's a gasp that comes with it that is just you will never forget it if you hear it with some a minor who has severe lung disease um but you know the benefit system has really evolved in a lot of ways to be kind of the worst of all worlds for minors um it has it elements of workers' compensation system, but it also has elements of high-stakes civil litigation, and it kind of combines the worst of those from a minor's perspective. And what I mean is that a workers' compensation system, the idea is that um, the employer has the liability capped, meaning not gonna, there's only so much you're going to pay out. Um, and in this case, it is relatively modest monthly benefits usually range from somewhere to uh, around 700 to $1,100 a month, depending on how many dependents uh, the minor has, um, plus medical coverage for lung disease related treatment. Um, so that liability is capped for the employer, but then in return, you make it a little bit easier for the worker to prove his or her claim. Well, in this system, the employer gets the cap liability, but it really isn't that much easier for the minor to prove his or her claim. And then at the same time, you have companies fighting this as if it is a million dollar lawsuit um, in a lot of cases uh, where they're, they're just, is, you know, it, these cases will drag on for 10, 15, uh, even, you know, Follow the case of, of minors who last more than 20 years trying to get benefits. Um, and I think, you know, one that really stood out to me that I started following his story um, in 2013 was a minor named Steve Day. And he was, you know, he was kind of the epitome of what happened in central Appalachia. Um, you know, worked uh, at the face for many years for a large coal company and, uh, you know, eventually contracted severe black lung. Um, but he was, when I met him, he had lost his case and um, the government was actually coming after him for repayment of the interim benefits that he'd been paid after he initially won. Um, and it was just puzzling to me how he'd lost his case. And it was, then that I started to see that you have all these cases where they're just seemingly puzzling outcomes where you have minors who are being treated for black lung. They have large masses on their x-rays that no one can really fully explain and that their doctors believe is black lung, but that the company's doctor says is probably something else. And these minors end up losing their claims. Um, and that was what happened with, with Steve. And it was only uh, really sadly in his case that he finally died and his autopsy proved that he had severe, just an extensive case of black lung. Um, but it, it took, it took that for him to win his claim. And that is, uh, unfortunately, that is, is too common. And, um, but I think one of the, the reasons for that is, is something that um, I really started to see in the specific context, like in Steve's case and other minors' case, but I mean, it's, it's a, it's something that I think, um, you know, you've written about eloquently, Barbara Ellen, which is 
you know, this fight over black lung, and I only came to realize this later after doing a lot of reading, but this fight over black lung has really, in a lot of ways, been a, a fight over what the definition of the disease is. And um, medical professionals have really kind of had a complicit role in this in, in a lot of cases and kind of have acted as gatekeepers almost you know, defining what the disease is and telling minors that, you know, what you're experiencing is not legitimate just because we don't have some sort of objective way of, of measuring exactly your level of disease or, or something like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if, Barbara Ellen, if you could just kind of go through, you know, the, the history of that and why you think that's been the case and why it's still happening today. Yeah, sure, I can try to. It's a long history, and so I'll, I'll you know, obviously uh, shorten it and try to be brief. But there's a lot of evidence that, you know, going back to the 19th century and well before that, uh, coal miners themselves, people who lived in coal mining districts, people familiar with those, novelists, um, there's popular literature that, that shows a widespread awareness of a relationship between dust inhalation and the kind of disabling respiratory conditions that coal miners tended to have as they aged, you know, spitting up huge gobs of black sputum, and of course, just a, a constant chronic struggle to breathe. Um, you even find in the United States, for example, physicians in the 19th century observing these problems and attributing them to coal miners' work. Um, and so what's particularly uh, disturbing, astonishing, I'm not sure what to call it, is that you get this blanket of silence uh, that falls over the problem, at least on the part of the medical profession, um, by the early 20th century or so. And... I think there are a lot of explanations for that. One is, is certainly the rise of the company doctor system, because as the Appalachian coal industry expanded, um, coal companies developed company towns in which they controlled housing, food supply, the stores, uh, the railroad access to towns, and the healthcare delivery system. So you had physicians treating minors. Um, who had no incentive whatsoever because they were controlled by the company. Their employment was controlled by the company. No incentive whatsoever to um, identify uh, work-related lung disease among minors. Um, but I think there are other factors, too, that have to do with the, the history of medical science during this period. It involved what some people call a phase of laboratory medicine or increasing emphasis on scientific testing um, to validate what patients reported as their own condition. And so, um, you know, some people talk about this as kind of a, a period when the sick person disappears from medicine because it, the, the validity of what people say they are experiencing in their own bodies comes to take a decidedly secondary place to the validating processes of medical testing and for coal miners that becomes the x-ray that becomes extremely important and um, physicians would look at x-rays of miners lungs and not see anything that they recognize as any kind of classically impairing um, condition and they were 
informed in part by Stilica, ironically enough, um, because that was a more recognized um, problem than it to say silicosis. So, uh, as you know, we were talking about earlier, uh, there's a whole lengthy period in, during the development of the Appalachian coal industry, late 19th into the 20th century, um, generation after generation of coal miners are contracting lung disease, especially intensively with mechanization. Um, but physicians deny any kind of relationship between coal dust inhalation in the workplace and any kind of disabling lung disease. They tend to attribute it to alcoholism or um, individual habits like, uh, you know, other harmful uh, behaviors, cigarette smoking, of course, is uh, um, often invoked, um, but there's a steadfast refusal to acknowledge a relationship between work exposures and lung disease. Uh, this begins to change when the United Mine Workers, uh, in the period immediately after World War II, manages to gain, through collective bargaining, a union control healthcare system um, that kind of reverses the company doctor system by requiring the industry, as opposed to miners who had to pay the company doctor but didn't control his employment. Now the, the industry pays through a kind of royalty for healthcare, but in effect the union controls um, the medical care delivery system. And so you get physicians um, now being hired not directly by the union, but by union finance health system, um, who are in some cases quite interested in public health, in possibility of a relationship between workplace exposure and lung disease. And they began publishing uh, articles, some of them are quite polemical because they're aware of the denial um, of uh, lung disease that is occupationally related among coal miners. Um, but still, despite that, because that began in the, in the 50s, by the late 60s, you still, as we mentioned earlier, in a state like West Virginia, have physicians denying the legitimacy of coal miners' uh, lung disease. And it really takes the political intervention of coal miners and their families insisting on the legitimacy of their own experience of disease. And that's really, you know, is, is, is a very important this kind of conflict um, between medical and also legal definitions of black lung and what those who actually experience this disease or seek it up close to their family members know to be their own reality. So, so speaking of that, <laughs> uh, conflict or contradiction between um, how some physicians have viewed Black lung uh, and how miners themselves have experienced it. Chris, you really did an amazing investigative job of uncovering the um, work of the uh, radiologist, Dr. Paul Wheeler, uh, who was at Johns Hopkins um, and uh, who read thousands of x rays uh, of coal miners' lungs uh, in federal black lung compensation claims. And not once did he find advanced, severely disabling black lung disease. Not once. It's really quite an appalling story. So, um, 
I'm just wondering if you could talk some about that. You did an amazing research job to uncover that, but also just how do you see this um, physician stance in relation to this long history of medical controversy over black lung? Yeah, it's a it's really interesting because it does fit within that continued history of what you were describing of sort of keeping a narrow definition of what the disease is and that serves to shut out minors who don't have a particular appearance of disease and in in the case of, of dr wheeler i mean i should say he he is he his record made him an outlier and he was extremely prolific um which was one reason he had such an outsized impact as well as the fact that he had a very impressive um resume and was a, you know a prominent um doctor at Johns Hopkins um which carries a lot of weight in the in the benefits system um but he also um you know his his view is not necessarily um all completely different from some of the other doctors who frequently read x-rays for um for coal companies and but he he just had this very strict view of what the disease looks like on an x-ray and it has to meet all these very very specific criteria and if it wasn't if it didn't look like that it just to him it would not be or almost certainly was not um black lung and you know it was only when i started to look at one his record and then two what the medical literature actually has been saying over recent decades and what other experts um, I have also been saying, you know, based on their own experience treating minors. And you see that these rules that he had are really not hard and fast. And in many cases, they're, they've been discredited or disproven. Um, yet he continued to apply them. And because of the way the benefits system worked, it was very difficult to challenge that. And um, it was really, uh, you know, only in recent years when his record kind of, when it became apparent what his full record was and um, that the, you know, there have been attempts to change that. There is now a, a, a quality control system um, that is being set up. Um, and, you know, it, so a little, a little scrutiny has, has sort of shaken that. But I will say this. This idea of keeping the disease kind of in the in a box is is not over, and it's not limited to readings and compensation claims um, on that issue either. I mean, it's there is now a, there's an increasing recognition that coal dust causes scarring and impairment of many types. Uh, it can vary among you know different people respond differently to dust. And even now, um, we're sort of seeing new variations on the disease that don't look exactly like the classic model, but are increasingly being recognized. And um, it, it's just, you know, it's amazing to me because looking back in the history that you described, Barbara Ellen, it's, um, you know, I, I saw so much of the present moment in a lot of in a lot of that history. Um, but I know this is something, uh, and this is, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your take on this because obviously you, 
you're an expert on black lung, but you also, you know, um, uh, have done a lot of uh, labor work more broadly. And it seems to me that this narrow, um, these constraints, these, these medical definitions of the disease, um, it's not just the coal industry, right? I mean, this is something that, um, that is a broader issue in occupational health and that workers deal with across a range of industries, right? Yeah, let me speak to that. But let me start by um, kind of picking up on what you're referencing, Chris, which is the um, sort of the multiple disease processes that that are at stake here um, in what's called black lung. Because um, I think one of the errors that a lot of people make, and you see this often in articles about black lung and black black lung activism and so forth, is to equate black lung with co-workers pneumoconiosis, which is by definition a work-related lung disease that can be disabling um, in certain um, certain points. Uh, But coal miners can also get bronchitis, they can get emphysema, they can get other diseases from occupational dust exposure. Now, they can also get emphysema from cigarette smoking, and you can get bronchitis from, you know, inhaling a lot of polluted air in your neighborhood. Um, so part of the problem with this compensation situation is the bar that you have to reach to prove that something is occupationally related. And on an individual case, when you're looking at um, evidence, for example, of advanced emphysema. Um, a physician can't necessarily say for that individual claimant is that due to occupational exposure such that the compensation you know should be provided through the federal black lung system um, or is it some other cause? And that's where there's a real, I think, very important um, relationship between black lung and black lung activism and medical politics around black lung and workers in other industries because there's so many industries in which workers are exposed to, for example, hazardous chemicals that cause kidney cancer or bladder cancer or whatever. Um, But you could also contract those cancers from other non-occupational sources. So part of the problem that this whole system is pushing up against is the incapacity of medical science to allocate, you know, disease causation on an individual basis. Um, But that also, I think, means that it's incredibly important for both workers and people in communities who are facing environmental hazards um, to really um, not be uh, intimidated or... um, you know, stopped in their tracks by the fact that they feel that they are experiencing health problems, lung disease, cancers, whatever it might be, um, that collectively seems to be affecting the community, the neighborhood, the workplace, the, the larger group of workers, um, to insist on the reality of that. Because in many cases, the scientific research just simply doesn't exist to prove a relationship. That's surely true in the case of many chemicals, for example. Um, we 
experienced that here in Charleston when um, storage tanks that contain chemicals that are used to, to clean coal began leaching into the water supply for hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, folks were smelling licorice in, as they ran their faucets. People were developing rashes and so forth. Um, but there was no, like, scientific research that could say, oh, well, this threshold is safe, but that's not. It, it's simply not known. And, I mean, we live today in a chemical suit, so um, in which there's, you know, there are many substances that are not well understood in terms of their um, consequences for human health. So the point is that I think that the black lung struggle has relevance um, across many industries and also communities um, that are facing environmental hazards. And I just have to <laughs> make a note about that because I think, you know, one of the real um, like original sins of public health is to divide occupational health from environmental health when you know, people who work in a place like Shirley in southern West Virginia are not only breathing coal dust underground, but they're also breathing it to do with next to the preparation plants or whatever. Um, and so to not understand disease more holistically um, becomes very problematic. And it also, frankly, undergirds this competition between jobs, the workplace, protect your job, and, you know, don't worry about the environmental effects. But you know, the reality is that our bodies are experiencing both seamlessly. So, um, yeah. So I'm interested, um, Chris, you, um, you began your investigation, um, as you mentioned, it was um, really at a time when the resurgence of black lung was becoming um, evident. And in more recent years, the clarity that it's really very severe um, disease that, that's rising. Um, so I'm wondering, given the um, sort of regulatory infrastructure for coal mining, which is lodged with the um, Mine Safety and Health Administration, or what people call MSHA, um, what do you see as that agency's kind of culpability uh, in terms of a failure to prevent this kind of um, resurgence of black lung? And, um, you know, what changes would be necessary? It's, a, it's an interesting and difficult question. I mean, the, you know, the sampling system, um, you know, as you know, it, it relies pretty heavily on companies to self-police. Um, most, I mean, inspectors do sample uh, occasionally, but most of the dust sampling to prove compliance with the standard is done by the companies. Um, and um, there's really, I mean, one thing that was shocking to me is, you know, when I was, when I would talk to, to guys who had been in the mines, they would just describe rampant fraud and cheating as, as just sort of, they would talk about it matter-of-factly as if it were just a known sort of an open secret in the industry. And um, it really has been, I mean, when I, when I went back and looked at, at the history of this, it has been since 
the seventies, really. I mean, it has, it has not been secret that there are all sorts of ways to really game this system and not take samples that actually show what the miners are breathing and to make it look like they're complying with the law when you're not really. Um, and then there are all sorts of, of loopholes in the law, like getting to average five samples and only the average has to be in compliance or getting to run the pumps to sample for only part of a shift if it's longer than eight hours. Um, there, there are all sorts of these things that the, the coal operators would sort of figure out ways to take advantage of that. And, um, and then you also had pretty widespread where it would just, you know, as you've described, um, you know, you would just either put, put tape over the, the sampling device or you would go hang it in the clean air back, uh, out by or, you know, I mean, you just hear these stories so many times and these guys almost take it as a granted um, that it's going to happen. Um, but in 2014, you know, the IMSHA uh, enacted a, a pretty long sought um, regulation. Now, it, it lowered the dust standard by not as much as as uh, public health officials had recommended um the national institute for occupational safety and health had actually recommended in 1995 cutting the dust limit in half the new standard didn't go quite that far but if you talk with um you know a lot of the the people in the regulatory community they will argue that the key thing to that regulation was closing a lot of the loopholes and also requiring uh, the use of this continuous uh, sampling device that you know has a computer instead of a, an old-fashioned filter that dust collects on, and uh, it should theoretically be harder to cheat. Um, it's not clear yet whether that's going to be the case. The numbers uh, look pretty good on compliance so far, but of course, the numbers looked pretty good on compliance before too. Um, and it turned out that they weren't real. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I, I wanted to mention, because this is that your, your silica, uh, comments are, are, are really timely here. And I think there's really good evidence that that's what's driving a lot of this resurgence. And, um, you know, that, that has been something that has been on regulators' radar for years, but it hasn't, um, it hasn't really materialized into a rulemaking. Um, there is not a separate standard for silica that is enforceable. It is part of, it's this complicated formula that's part of the overall dust limit, but they're all, they're games that coal companies have played to get around that as well. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, it was either today or, or yesterday. I'm not sure if it was just released, but the, the Labor Department Inspector General just released a report finding that IMSHA was doing an inadequate job of protecting miners. From silica. Um, so that is something where, you know, the, the Labor Department um, issued a request for information this year. Um, and so they've gathered comments on it, but they have not acted. Um, and I think there's a lot of a lot of pressure from people in this community to act on that. And so it'll be very interesting to see, particularly um, with the new administration also, what, what, what happens with this. Um, but um, you know, one thing that I've thought about a lot and I've kind of pressed regulators when I've 
tried to assess the the effect of these reforms is you've closed the loopholes, but you fundamentally haven't changed the system in which it relies on company self-policing. And, um, you know, it may not be practical to have any other system. It, it probably, it would be incredibly difficult to have MSHA inspectors go on all these mines. But, but I'm wondering, um, Barbara Ellen, what, um, you know, if you've given the larger social and political and economic factors that are really, that you described so well earlier, I'm wondering if, if there's any sort of, um, system for policing the minds that relies on largely on self-policing policing that can work and you know if not what, what might be some other potential solutions for protecting miners going forward oh gosh that's a tall order um <laughs> in this context i mean it's because as you point out it relies so much on the, the current system relies so much on, on companies to self-police. And there's just so much evidence that if a company wants to cheat on dust sampling, they can. <laughs> and there's just, um, there's really not sufficient disincentive um, in terms of, uh, you know, not cheating or, or the incentive not to cheat. So um, I don't mean to sound anti-regulation because I absolutely believe that, for example, setting um, the dust standard and lowering it as the, this rule that you mentioned in 2014 did, um, it's hugely important because it, it creates a kind of threshold target, you know, and it's a it's something very tangible that miners and others can, you know, peg themselves to um, if they uh, are able and willing but able is especially the word there um, to try to enforce, um, you know, dust limits underground or above ground for that matter. Um, but I guess, you know, what I conclude by looking at the long history of particularly black lung um, is that in the absence of greater um, collective power on workers' part, uh, it's going to be really, really difficult to um, eliminate this disease and, or even perhaps reduce it significantly because, of course, we're seeing now the results of practices that occurred and 20 years ago. Black lung, I guess we haven't mentioned this, but it, you know, it has a latency period. It takes a while to manifest. Um, and meanwhile, the coal industry is collapsing. Um, and so employment in the industry is really just falling off a cliff. Um, and so on the one hand, that means you've got, of course, far fewer workers being exposed to dust level. Um, but at the same time, um, it also means that the mines that do remain in operation because of the fortunes of the coal industry are under tremendous pressure to um, you know, mine as cheaply as possible. And so, um, you know, I, I frankly think that the collapse of the coal industry is going to be more decisive in reducing black lung disease um, than, uh, than ambitious regulations. But I, that sounds very cynical. And I do think that 
um, the we really need a separate standard for silica and the the inspector general's report that you just mentioned um, really stresses that. Uh, it's, I mean, OSHA now has a standard <laughs> for silica, and yet in coal mines where we have you know workers really being afflicted with silica-related those disease, um, there's not a separate uh, standard for which sampling is done um, for silica. So it's a crazy situation. Um, so before we turn to some questions from folks who are listening, because I, I hear my phone beeping, which means there's some questions coming in. Um, one of the really important um, aspects of your investigation, Chris, was the, the work that you did in documenting the actions of Jackson Kelly, um, the, the coal operator's go-to law firm here in Charleston. West Virginia actually has got offices all over the place, but um, you really offer a fascinating history of it. I didn't realize that um, this law firm dates back to the early 19th century, to the period before West Virginia was even a state, um, when it was formed pretty much to defend the interests of those who sought to own land and develop industry and build their wealth um, in uh, this part of the world. Um, and today, of course, it sends uh, coal companies against miners' black lung claims. Um, your investigation documented tactics that, though they may technically be legal, are pretty morally reprehensible um, on the part of Jackson Kelly's lawyers. I'm just wondering if you could describe describe what you found, and also um, talk a little about how you understand their actions. You know, are they, is it just, just sort of bad apples, or is this how the law works, or um, particularly in relationship to workers, or how do you understand that situation? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the way that I got into the looking at the benefit system, um, and this dates back to, to 2012, I believe, when I was first reporting in Southern West Virginia on what was causing the resurgence of the disease. And it was there that I met John Klein, who was an attorney by then, um, but he had actually uh, come to the coal fields as an idealistic 20-something, as uh, a VISTA volunteer, Volunteers in Service to America. It's like the domestic version of the Peace Corps, and um, it was part of the war on poverty. And um, ended up staying and um, becoming... Well, he was a carpenter and then had a home building business who, and he and his father ran a business that built, uh, homes for, for, uh, people who qualified for government backed low interest loan programs. And then he eventually went to work at a rural medical clinic, which was one of the, the clinics that actually received government funding to, uh, diagnose and treat minors who have black lung. And he was a benefits counselor and it was there that he actually started helping miners with their claims and representing them as a lay representative in cases. And it was, that was um, something that was a, a little bit probably crazy at the time, um, uh, given that lawyers wouldn't even take a lot of these cases. But, um, but John started to uncover, he was taking on this law firm, Jackson Kelly, a lot. And in, in a number of cases, because they handle, they are the go-to firm for a lot of the, the big coal companies in Appalachia. And what he started to see in the early 90s was um, 
what he felt like was a, a pattern of withholding critical medical evidence in in uh, benefits cases that was causing minors to be wrongfully denied uh, of their claims. And it was something where he he really pushed over this and sort of case by case by case unraveled it. Um, and it was ultimately the case of a man named Gary Fox. And so my, my book is really focused on the, the interweaving narratives of Gary Fox and John Klein and the implications that 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 case has for other minors. And it's sort of the culmination of this fight. And, um, you know, Gary, um, what happened to him basically was that he had lost his original claim because the law firm had withheld a critical pathology report that, uh, two critical pathology reports that showed that their own experts believed he had severe black lung um, he ended up losing his claim and having to go back into the mines because he couldn't, his family couldn't be without health insurance because his wife had a chronic disease that was very expensive to treat. And he got, he would continue to breathe the dust and got so sick that he, um, uh, when he finally got out and filed a subsequent claim, he, um, died while the claim was ongoing, um, while trying to get a lung transplant. But it was really, that case um, that he pushed literally into, uh, onto his deathbed and then his wife pushed afterward to force the law firm, Jackson Kelly, to disclose the reports that they'd withheld in the previous case. And it was ultimately that was the case that ended up being critical in making everyone see what John Klein had been seeing and what he had been arguing for you know, for almost 20 years at that point. And what you have in then in 2016 is the Labor Department uh, ended up enacting a rule that required um, disclosure of all medical evidence in in uh, benefits claims by both sides, regardless of whether anyone asked. And this was really what, what John had been seeking for so long. And um, it was... It was a remarkable thing to see this happen. I mean, that actually happened while after I started working on the book and and while I was doing the reporting. So it was really encouraging to see that. Um, but you know, in, in terms of of assessing you know the state of the law, it was complicated because you know these the the attorneys at Jackson Kelly. They first of all, they would not really. They did not want to talk with me for the most part, um, which is not surprising in stories like this. And that's certainly their right to do that. Um, I wish they had, um, because I think I really wanted to understand their motivations. And I think that's because you look, you look at these, the lawyers and they are people who could be your next door neighbors in, in suburbia. They're at your church. They're participating in all the local civic organizations, donating their time. Um, they're prominent, esteemed lawyers, and I wanted to understand how they could, at the same time, justify doing something that seemed so obviously harmful um, to very vulnerable people. And, you know, it ultimately, it came down to, I, I think, this, it's, it's a larger thing that, that you see in, in the law a lot of times is that 
the adversarial system functions a certain way in this country. And, um, you know, it, that whatever results from whatever is legally permissible must also be, or probably is also justifiable, which is not necessarily the case. And so it's really, I think it highlights that split between, um, what you can do and and what you ought to do. And that was something that I really um, hope to bring to light um, to some degree, you know, in this book. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know, Barbara, do you, you want to move to questions now? I saw some. Yeah, I did, but I just want to praise the investigative work that you did. Um, and, uh, yeah, and note that you know, in the context of some of the gloom and doom we've spoken of, that was a very important victory. Um, else, yeah. yeah. I see a question here that actually there was something, it was kind of a follow-up to something that I asked you earlier that I, it's okay, I, I think I'll ask you to, to field this one. This comes from um, my viewer, Paul Sheridan. Um, any thoughts on whether science denial in the industrial context or in other contexts, uh, climate change, COVID, uh, is evolving and responding to other political, economic, and cultural factors. Um, it seems like something that <laughs> that would be. Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question, and in part, I want to answer it by for clarifying that um, I think that the struggle between miners and their families and physicians over the definition of black lung, and for example, where you set disability. Um, in terms of tests of lung function and so on, uh, did not, for the most part, involve a denial of um, science, per se, uh, because there have always been physicians who agreed with <laughs> minors' sense of their own condition. Uh, Dr. Donald Rasmussen um, much beloved work for many, many years in Beckley, West Virginia. More recently, um, Dr. Bob Cohen uh, in Chicago is kind of mantle that Rasmussen Hill has fallen on him. Both esteemed researchers. Um, so, uh, and I would also note that coal miners and those who um, became lay advocates that is to say, often minors, wives, widows, daughters, brothers, whatever, um, to, who argued black lung compensation claims and assisted people with their claims, developed very um, sophisticated understandings of x-rays and all of the you know, details of medical um, evidence that's required in black lung claims. So, I don't want to give the impression that this struggle involved a kind of denial of science um, and an assertion that, well, whatever we think is true is true, <laughs> um, you know, or uh, or something parallel to what we're seeing, for example, with COVID and the denial of the, the severity um, of that disease, or something parallel with climate change. I guess. Um, what I would say, though, is that I think the black lung case really um, illustrates or, or it offers a kind of caution about the um, 
role of science in in problems that are fundamentally about unequal political power or lack of political power and about things like economic exploitation. Um, science has an incredibly important role to play as a resource in those struggles, but it's not going to solve those problems. Um, the solutions are more fundamentally, I think, political than economic. But um, but in, but then that's all about sort of how to answer that question in the context of black lung. I think it's a really interesting question, though, to think about, you know, the, the desire by some um, to move politically through science, denialism, um, and that that is, for sure, uh, a very serious problem. Whether it's morphing, I'm not sure. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, boy, it's, it's tough to know. And I, I you know, I, I would, I guess I would just say, as you know, I mean, science can, is kind of a, it can cut either ways, uh, way. And in, in, it's in some respects, I mean, you can, you can use it to achieve a lot of good, but, you know, as you described, I mean, it, it can also be used to kind of jam the disease in a box um, and overly overly narrowly define it and in, I guess in some ways it kind of seems like the limits of our technical prowess in terms of what we're able to detect um, scientifically may um, have you know implications that we don't intend for um, for, for workers and for other and for just public health generally because you know just because we can't we don't yet understand how to measure or detect some sort of causal agent or impairment doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't there. Um, and so, you know, I guess that's, that's, that's my two cents on that, but I, I think it is, um, it is just, you know, we, scientifically fraught world that we're, <laughs> we're living in these days. Um. There, I see here, this, this actually, I know I'm kind of firing them at you here, but I see a question here from Grant Crandall that also I think would be um, a really interesting one um, that you might have some thoughts on, Barbara Ellen. Um, uh, he says, what are, what are your views of the, of the role of the Black Lung Association uh, and the United Mine Workers Union in fighting the rights of miners with black lung from the time of Miners for Democracy forward? Um, what lessons do you draw from that history for the role of social movements in fighting for the rights of workers? I mean, you were you were part of that um, that movement, and you've written about it so well. What, what what's your take on that? Well, it's a huge question. Love you, Grant. Grant Randall was a really important force in, in West Virginia as a lawyer, and then also became a general counsel for the United Mine Workers. Um, so uh, part of what I was um, trying to suggest in my earlier comments about the resurgence of black lung disease is the just totally fundamental importance of a strong union um, for workers to be able to enforce um, health and safety standards um, in their workplaces. There's really just no substitute for that kind of collective organization. Um, the union in different periods has had 
varying degrees of commitment to occupational health and safety, but in the wake of the Miners for Democracy um, and its election uh, you know, to the leadership of the union in 1972, um, even though there were some bumps after that, um, certainly the subsequent leadership by um, the current president, um, Cecil Roberts, and also the former president, Mitch Trumka, who's now the head of the AFL-CIO, has really carried on um, that tradition of uh, commitment to workplace health and safety. And um, the Black Lung Associations, I think, uh, had a really, really important role to play throughout this period in terms of advocating for um, changes in the federal compensation program and also assisting individual minors. Um, so, and that the, the combination of the two, that is to say, in effect, the kind of community-based organization of um, coal mining people that was inclusive of a lot of women, the union, of course, includes women now, too, because women have gone into the mines, but in far lower numbers. Um, that's a, a terrifically powerful combination because you have, you know, the institutional power of the union um, seeking to lobby for black lung reform, for example, and you also have black lung associations um, organizing trips of minors with their oxygen tanks and wheelchairs and so on to come to D.C. and really demonstrate the severity um, of this disease. So uh, I think there's no, um, I don't know of any substitute for that. Uh, and right now, you know, the union is, as I was mentioning earlier, really impaired in Central Appalachia where this disease is so um, so significantly surging, um, or has so significantly surged. And so it's, um, the Black Lung Associations in some ways have become, at least in a, a social sense and to some degree a political sense, substitutes for local unions. I mean, going to Black Lung Association meetings these days is really, um, you know, is often in context where there is no uh, there are no functioning local unions, and so miners gather, and you hear people, you know, trading stories about what they did underground and so on. But in the absence of um, a strong union to complement that, um, especially at the, you know, that more local level in the mines, to insist on enforcement of dust standards and so on. Um, it becomes very difficult. I know that um, the Black Lung Associations are, are not doing it uh, now, obviously because of COVID. But just last year, even in the middle of 2019, they were up here. I'm based in DC, so they were up here. Um, you know, lobbying uh, as always. Um, the issues now, right, are the um, the coal excise tax uh, is set to expire at the end of this year, and this is the tax that um, that companies pay on per ton of coal to uh, 
to finance the trust fund that that pays miners benefits in cases when there's I mean, the company's either gone out of business or gone through bankruptcy, which is increasingly happening <laughs> these days, unfortunately. Um, and if that tax rate will revert back to the the level that the Reagan administration deemed unsuccess uh, unsustainable and in the eighties, um, unless Congress acts by the end of this year. So, you know, I mean, there's still lots of, um, active issues on the table and it's, you know, the, the black lung association is still very active. And, um, you know, recently it was interesting. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Barbara Ellen, but they've revived the black lung bulletin, which I know was, um, uh, something that, um, you know, John Klein would, he would haul this around and take it to all the local union shops um, in the 70s, early 70s. And, and it kind of um, went silent because there was, you know, they won their reforms, but now it's it's started back up again. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe this um, this is the return of the the um, rank and file miners movement, similar to what was in 1968 or 69. But um, that may Obviously, there are a lot of differences now, but I don't, I don't know if it's possible to revive something like that. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's um, the Black Lung Association is revived and going strong. Good to see yeah. that. Yeah. There's one um, quick question here from um, Leslie Guidi that's asking, where are there still coal mines? I thought... Most of the work had been automated, and certainly there has been a lot of automation, especially, well, underground with long wall machinery, out west with massive strip jobs, as we were talking about earlier. Um, but there are still coal mines actually all over the country, um, in, uh, out west, as well as in the so-called Illinois Basin, um, Illinois, western Kentucky, um, and as well as in Appalachia. But it's less at this point because of automation and more because the industry is collapsing that there are many, many mines are shutting down. Um, employment is way down. And as Chris was mentioning, many companies are going bankrupt. So. But I wouldn't say that um, some of the, the, circum- the economic circumstances actually seem to be increasing the dangers for miners in some of these smaller mines in central Appalachia because, you know, the trend that you described of the economics um, making it now possible to go after these thin seams, which means cutting a lot more rock. Um, And then, you know, NIOSH um, has also, I think, you know, they've shown through published studies that, you know, there, there is a correlation between uh, smaller mines and, uh, a higher incidence of disease. So in many respects, you know, these sort of these dog hole or punch hole mines, as a lot of people call them, are almost, you know, more dangerous. And so to the fact, to the degree that those are springing up in Appalachia to respond to both the decline of major, uh, companies and also, you know, just the, when the price of metallurgical coal rises internationally, you know, they open up some punch holes. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that could actually be increasing the dangers for some of the miners who do work in those conditions. And now that you, you know, the union, they're so, as you noted, so free or unionized, I think it really, they don't feel protected to speak up about conditions even less than they probably ever did to some degree. So 
it's a really difficult situation. It is, and just your mention of metallurgical coal makes me um, think of some analyses that I've read recently by business um, press about the coal industry and the uh, the fact that if we get a major infrastructure package passed through Congress, um, metallurgical coal mining may actually uh, get a renewed lease on life because of the steel required um, in those infrastructure projects, which would be um, interesting. Yeah, and that was... You know, as you write in your book, I mean, the decline of the domestic steel industry was really what hollowed out a lot of central Appalachia, the Met mines, at least um, in the first place years ago. So that that would be that's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't heard that. So maybe one other question. We just got a few minutes left. Um, there's one here about um, the Friends of Coal propaganda campaign. Um, and uh, just the question, perhaps sharing our thoughts on on those. Um, that that was Friends of Coal is still evident for sure. Bumper stickers um, that you see quite frequently in um, East Kentucky, West Virginia, and so on. Um, and was very much a kind of industry finance campaign. Uh, particularly took off during the Obama administration and uh, targeted environmental regulation as being the cause of the decline in the coal industry. Um, we know that the, there are many factors and they have a lot to do with the growth of uh, natural gas renewables um, and just the market decline of coal. Um, but nonetheless, it was very... Uh, and remains, I think, uh, a very politically important argument. Uh, some people have analyzed that as just kind of an astroturf argument or organization. That is to say that it was just industry financed and didn't really have a lot of depth in terms of support among people in the coal fields. I'm really not, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't agree with that just because um, uh, I see too much evidence. <laughs> In, in the statements that I hear uh, folks making uh, that you know, environmental regulation is to blame, that it is and has been a war on coal. Um, so I think it's been extremely powerful. And uh, unfortunately, one of the reasons it's been so powerful, I think, is, is again, because we haven't had um, a union presence or another presence and voice that could counter that um, argument. So, uh, and, it, and it's been quite sophisticated in terms of infiltrating the public schools and, you know, pro-coal uh, lesson plans and presentations and so forth. Um, it's, you know, evident in the bumper stickers and so on. There's been lots of ad campaigns that associate coal with you know, manly coal miners and American nationalism. Um, so it's really ringing a lot of cultural bells um, to promote the idea that um, any kind of regulation of the industry is, is, is totally harmful to it and should be repudiated by any loyal coal mining people, which, given the collapse of the coal industry, is incredibly 
harmful in terms of being able to envision alternative futures. Yeah, ultimately, there's going to have to be whatever you believe about the reason for the decline. I think there's general agreement that the industry is in decline and that there has to be a different future for that region. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's it really inhibits um, having a productive conversation when you offer overly simplistic explanations of it. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of a lot of people would would be better served to have frank conversations with people who live in that area about what the future looks like. And I hope that that will happen. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're just about out of time, Chris. You want to close us yeah. out? Well, so um, I really, you know, this has been a great discussion. Um, it's, it's, I'm so glad that uh, I got a chance to, to finally talk to you face to face, Varelin, because your book was so incredibly helpful to me as I worked on mine. Um, and I would just, and, and I just recently reading the updated version has been so, um, it's been so interesting over the last few weeks. I just got my copy. Um, and, you know, so I'm, I'm so glad we got to, to talk. And I really would encourage people to, if you haven't already picked up Digging Our Own Graves, you got to pick it up. Get the new one if you already have the old one. Um, and, uh, you know, I also just want to thank Haymarket and um, Little Brown for for hosting this. It's been it's been a lot of fun for me. So thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.